Well, 500 years ago today, April 18, 1521, was a very important event that affected church history, that affected world history. Dr. Martin Luther, who wrote that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he was in Worms, Germany. My wife and I have been to that town. I actually got to stand at the very spot where Luther took his stand and gave his famous speech. He was on trial before high-ranking government officials and, and church officials sent there by the Pope. The emperor of the Roman Empire was there in person. And he was called to recant for his writings of protest. That's where the word Protestant comes from. The, his, his writings that he had been writing based on Scripture alone, they were wanting him to recant that and to recognize the authority of the Pope. And he gave his answer on April 18th, the day before he asked if he could have a day to prepare his answer. And as he stood before that council really standing against the world, he began to give a speech and they interrupted him and asked him, will you recant? And he says, because, because your majesty and your lordships demand a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by scripture, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. He said, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Those words would have a big impact on the world, the, the Western world, and, and even our faith to this day. But the question then and now was a question of authority. What has the ultimate authority? Who has the ultimate authority to act as head over the church? It's a question still before us. And the answer is Christ alone, through his scripture, rules his church. And 500 years Later, Luther had said to go against conscience is neither right nor safe, but those who, who want to follow their conscience as a church are told that it's not right or safe. And so we have a, a conflict. And there are high-ranking government officials who talk today as if they are emperors, as if they have infallible authority. They speak like Pope's ex-cathedra dictating what can and cannot be done at a church from singing to seating to meeting with a fraction of the church or not at all. And these authorities contradict each other from state to state and federal and local authorities often conflict. Or you could have the CDC and the CDPH, the governor and the constitution, the judges and the Supreme Court justices, but we've, we've got to go back to this principle of the authority and the conscience being bound to a, 
higher authority for how we worship and how we live our Christian lives. It is the Word of God that must drive us. And it's Jesus who is the head of the church. And so here we stand. And may God help His church to stand together, to be the church, even as there's different convictions and concerns and even different consciences that we would stand together as the, a church. And it was this issue of freedom of conscience that actually brought many to North America hundreds of, of years ago to be free to worship without the state regulating what they said and sang and what they must wear in terms of vestments. The, the state-run church in England in the 1600s, many Puritans were barred from meeting in church. They had to find barns and open places far away from town for their illegal meetings that the government didn't authorize and tried to shut down. There was a nonconformist movement among the, the Puritans and, and the pilgrims, even some of those that came here, that went against regulated and restricted worship. And some literally in those days locked ministers from church buildings and, and locked even up buildings themselves at times. And we're now hundreds of years after that fact in North America. And some in this very land are in a similar situation. We all are familiar with regulated worship where we're told what to wear and, and not to sing in some places, not to fellowship or have unauthorized meetings, but I'm thinking specifically of my brother James Coates up in Canada, who was locked up for 35 days as unsafe. This is, I've sat in the same classrooms with this brother. He has two children, the same age of two of my children. I've been gripped by his story. I've been encouraged by, by him. But why was he locked up, even as they were letting other prisoners out at the same time? His conscience from the Word of God did not let him turn away the vast majority of his church from when they were gathering. Eighty-five percent, to be precise, is what he was being told he would need to turn away. And so it would have been legal for them to do seven services with no singing and, and absolutely no fellowship or interaction before or after, but that was, that's not the church in his conviction or, or mine. And so at, they put him behind bars. That didn't stop the church. The church actually grow, grew by about 200 more people, I think. So then they decided they're going to shut. The, the church building is actually behind bars now, since that didn't work for the pastor. Three layers of steel fencing now surround Grace Life Church. And last week, Pastor Coates preached on Psalm 2, it was the text I already was thinking about that I wanted to preach today, and so I want you to turn to Psalm 2 because this is a, a timely passage for the church, and I want to come back to that story later, but as the nation up north is, is really still raging over this, around the world China is raging against secret churches, underground churches, the Middle East has been targeting Christians with Islamic rage, but we don't need to just think around the world. The moral revolution in America has its own plans against Christians. We can think of the LGBT and social justice movements who want to cancel and silence and censor Christian viewpoints or severely financially 
impact any who are not completely on board. We've seen this. This isn't just communists from around the world or from past centuries. Many Western nations and rulers are counseling together, which is what this psalm is going to talk about. The United Nations has globalist aims, and and the Marxist rulers are plotting. We can hear their, their voices. The woke mob is rallying rage, and they've been trained how to, how to promote more and more rage. There's nations in an uproar. There's protests all over the place. There's violence, and there is craziness in this world. And, and, and sometimes, do you ever just wonder why? I just ask the question, why is it this way? Why is there such rage on our nation's streets? Why has the world seem to be gone mad. Psalm 2, verse 1. Ask the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So this is a psalm right out the gate here that is, that is a psalm to make sense of the world. It moves from the why to the who. If you look at verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is the king of heaven who is over the kings of the earth. He rules over earthly rulers. He is king over the chaos. He is sovereign. And so the title of our message is The King Who Sits Over a Crazy World. And we'll see this passage unfold in these four sections, if this helps you follow along, we'll see man's rebellion in the first three verses. We'll see God's reaction then in the next section. And then we'll see Christ's reign. And then ultimately we need to think about your response. But first, man's rebellion, verses 1 through 3. This is the why questions. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. Notice who it's against. Against the Lord and against His anointed. Your Bible may have that in a capital A. I'll come back to that. This is what they're saying. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords away from us. The New Testament tells us King David wrote these words. And so we can think in his lifetime of those who were defying the the living God, Goliath being the biggest example. But nations like the Philistines and others took their stand against the Lord and against his anointed king. The people of Israel at times were plotting against David, but their plots were in vain to try to overthrow him because he was the one who God would have to lead his people. But his own son, I've been reading through this and reading through the Bible this year, his own son formed a mutiny and they had these plans to try to cast off his rule because Absalom wanted to rule. And so you can think of some things in David's lifetime, but this, this really is the psalm unfolds, looks bigger and beyond just those times and the way the, the Bible even quotes this many times in the New Testament, this psalm. So I want you to just look at one of those. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Because it's important to see how the, the Jews in New Testament times interpreted and, and applied Psalm chapter 2. Acts chapter 4 is when Israel's government authorities were trying to stop the church. They weren't to teach and, and they weren't to meet in the, in the temple as they were initially. 
Peter and John said, we can't stop speaking. We, we must obey God and not man. And so they jailed those men, Peter and John. But the, the, the gospel could not be stopped through that. So look at Acts 2, verse 24. And when they heard it, they, they, this is the early church, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles or the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Or Your Bible might have the word Christ there. The, the word anointed, Mashiach in Hebrew, is, is Christos or Christ in Greek. And they're quoting from Psalm 2. And they're saying this is about Christ. And, and they understood that even as Herod and Pontius Pilate, as the Jews and the Romans and these people that normally didn't get along, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they all came together against Christ. Here's how verse 27 they interpret it. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So even as all these evil people are, are doing all these things, they recognize from Psalm 2 that the Lord is sovereign and it's actually His hand that's accomplishing His purpose through all these things. He is predestined all these things. He's orchestrating all these things. Even the death of the ultimate anointed. The ultimate anointed Messiah King Jesus at the hands of heathen men. They were conspiring together to put him to death, but knowing God's sovereignty over evil. From Psalm 2, in verse 29, it, it gave them boldness and courage. And, and seeing these things emboldened them to, to speak more, to share the gospel more. And it should have this effect on us as well as we see these things in God's Word. When men are at their worst, God is at His best. He's in charge the church will not be stopped, and that should embolden us. And so when the end of verse 27 applies Psalm defiant stance. And the nation's rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed or against His Christ. And since the times of the, the early parts of the Bible, we could think of the Tower of Babel in a sense, the first uniting of all these peoples to try to do it their way, to throw off what God had said. We could, we could go through Old Testament history and, and see even people like Haman wanting to put an end to the Jewish people and then the very gallows that he builds are the ones that would hang himself. We could see that through, through many cases here, but we could see it beyond Bible times as well. We could see man rebelling against God and rebelling against his son. Here, here's, if we can kind of paraphrase what they're saying in verse 3, here's what some other versions have. They say, let's tear off the shackles they've put on us. Does that sound familiar? Let's, let's free ourselves from, from, from this oppression or these ropes. Let's, let's get rid of what's holding us back, that, that ties us down. Isn't that the, the spirit of our age as well? Let us free ourselves from the restraints. And so we can think of other nations trying to, to tear down 
crosses, get rid of all symbols of Christianity. But we can think of, there's people who want to do that in our nation as well. They want to, anything that has the Judeo-Christian law written on it or reminding them through that, they want to get rid of that. There's a moral revolution in our nation that, that is attempting this very verse politically. This very year, I think we can, if we really listen well to the psalm, we can hear the voices of the past several decades saying, let's, let's cast off God from, from secular schools or society. Let's, let's keep the state separate. Let's, let's not be fettered by Christian tradition. Let's not let ourselves be tied down anymore by the ropes of religion. Let's, let's tear down any Ten Commandments references or anything that might offend some person. Let's tear off these shackles that, that once held families together. Let's, let's free ourselves sexually. Let's, let's burst through any bands or any bounds of, of morality. Let's cast away clothing. Let's cast away any common sense and, and decency. Let's, let's throw off those moral restraints. Let's break through every barrier. I mean, that's what's been happening this year. But think about this. They're wanting to be free as a, if you were at the men's conference last year, you heard H.B. Charles talk about as a tree free when it's loosened from its, its roots and it's no longer where it had been rooted and grounded. Is that tree really free when it's laying there on the ground? We have one of those on our property. That tree is not free because it's loose from, from those roots. He says it's a fish really free when it finally gets out of the, the, the bounds and the barrier of the water that, that it's been in. And it now has a hook in its mouth and it's out of the water. It's, is that fish really free or is a, is a train really free when it leaves the tracks that it's been designed for and that train goes off somewhere else? That, that's not freedom. That's danger. That's deadly but, but that's what these voices are calling for. They don't realize the, 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 the end. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is, is death. But our, our society has, has been saying for years, let's get rid of marriage as societies have known it for thousands of, of years as between a man and a, a woman. And, and, you know, even that concept of man and woman, that's, that's old-fashioned, or, or the idea that it's good for children to have, to have uh, fathers and mothers, that that's good for boys and girls, or that we should even call them boys or girls rather than what they want to call themselves. I mean, let's not hold ourselves back anymore by all of that. They say, don't, let's not be tied down by biological gender or bodily design, or, or let's throw off that, that bigotry that thinks there should be bounds of men around women or young girls. Let's, let's just throw open all doors, and let's throw out all wisdom. And above all, let's throw away vestiges of Christ and his word. Is this a psalm that speaks to our world today? What they're saying here is what the world is still saying in the latest version of it. Let's throw off the legacy of Christian colonialism that wanted to convert people. Those white, male, straight Christians are oppressors. We need, to, we need to throw off oppression. That's what the, the protesters are saying. We need to burst the bonds of the nuclear family that they want to disrupt. How are we to react to this crazy world? How are we to think? How are we to react? I think what this psalm would have us to do, what I see this psalm would have us to do is to 
think the way God thinks about this, to, to see how God reacts. Because we need to see our sovereign God is not anxious. He's not alarmed in the least. We've seen man's rebellion, but we need to see God's reaction. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens, what does it say? Laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Notice the contrast. These earthly kings are standing against the Lord. The Lord is sitting there in the heavens. He's just sitting there. He is unthreatened is the idea. He is undisturbed. He is on his throne while man is off his rocker. This crazy world is not alarming him. This world that's on a war path against God, he's not pacing nervously in heaven. He is sitting there. He is, if we can say it reverently, snorting in, dis- in derision at man's decisions. It's as if to say, really? Seriously? You, you think you can overthrow me? You think you can throw me off? You think you can get rid of me? And this, this little rebellion isn't even taken seriously by God. There's no panicking in heaven. There is, there, there's laughing in heaven. This human mutiny is divine comedy. He, he's not, he's not uh, worried by this in the least bit. This world that's trying to make a plan against God, seeking counsel for a coup against him, God doesn't need any counsel. He doesn't need any planning session. He just looks down at this. And he laughs it off as a pathetic, puny, microscopic, idiotic insurrection. The hymn says, On the rock of ages founded, what can shake your sure repose? And it says, You smile at all your foes. Nothing can shake God from his sure repose. He smiles at his foes. And we can think of Pharaoh in Egypt. I mean, this has been playing out through Bible times again. Pharaoh wanting to put an end to all all of God's people. And he's trying to drown all of the the males of Egypt. and, And yet... One of them, through his female daughter that she finds and adopts, grows up to be the one who would deliver all of his people from there and would actually bring judgment upon them. And that he would say, let my people go to, to, to worship me. Pharaoh thought he could plan against and put an end to God's people. But God had to smile as he sees that little baby boy floating down the river, knowing what he's going to do. And here, this is ultimately applied in Acts 4 to when Christ was crucified. Those people who had all, got all these plans together, they had been plotting how to put an end to, to Christ. The one who had said, take my yoke upon you. They're wanting to throw off that yoke now. They're thinking as they kill him that that's finally been done. That yoke's been cast off. That Christ and his movement is now finally over, officially, permanently. That's what they were thinking. But God in heaven had to just smile and 
and laugh in, in, a, in a reverent sense there. Heaven is rumbling, the earth is going to be shaking, the grave is going to be opening, and the king is actually going to come out, and that's going to be what launches his movement. All their raging and plotting was in vain. Vainly they tried to seal the dead. Vainly they watched the grave, but death cannot keep his prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. That's that's what we remember at at Easter, his mighty triumph over the foes. He actually tore away the bars of of death, metaphorically, and he, he burst the literal bonds of the grave. But maybe some of those same people thought in Acts 7, when they, would, when they stoned Stephen, if we put an end to this Stephen, this one who's testifying mightily, we're going to put an end to Christianity now. We've stoned Stephen. We're going to make a public scene of this. The Christians are going to see this. They're going to be afraid. This is going to cause the church to disperse. And, and they're thinking this, and God, again, has to just look down and smile because he sees right next to Stephen, there's a young man holding the robes of these people who he's going to be working on his heart and is in this moment. And, and this young man, Saul, is going to be the one who picks up the torch and brings Christianity much farther than Stephen did. And so all these attempts of Psalm 2, verse 3, they have all failed and Jesus has prevailed. And, and I think it's encouraging to walk through some of those through history. So Emperor Diocletian, a couple hundred years later, around 300 A.D., thought he had actually accomplished verse 3. He has a, a medal, a monument that, that boasts to this day the, the name of Christians has been extinguished. He has this written. Archaeology has, has found it. Uh, Diocletian, having extinguished the name of Christians, this is what's written, he has everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ. He thought he had actually gotten rid of Christianity, but he imagined a vain thing. And God, again, as he looks down at him setting up these pillars, has to smile again because seven years later, Christianity is going to become the official religion of that very Roman Empire. We could go forward in history to the French Revolution, where there was, again, craziness, mayhem in the streets. People were tearing down anything that would remind them of historic Christianity and and on one of the churches, is, is a, one of those revolters was, was tearing down the spire and the cross. He's telling the crowd, we're going to tear down everything that reminds you of God. And one of the people in the crowd said, how are you going to tear down the stars out of the sky? Because you can't tear down everything that reminds us of God. His glory is all around us in creation. You can't, by doing that, put an end to God and his kingdom. We're coming more close to our time in China. There was a quote I saw years ago of someone who, who said a number of years ago, they had, they had written this in the 20th century, that Christianity, it now seems, has been completely obliterated from China. And the Lord again had to laugh, seeing whoever wrote that, because God, in his plan, not only was going to, but was already bringing about what may have been the greatest growth in Christianity in one country ever that was happening in China right then, undercover. Nations in the Middle East have raged more than ever in history in recent 
decades, even as many of them wanted to wipe out Christianity and take over the world, I think God again looks down at that with a smile, a sovereign smile, because in those very years, even the last 30-some years, there's estimates that more from those Arab lands and from Muslims have come to faith in Christ than in 14 centuries prior. God is at his best when man is at his worst. Behind the frowning providence of persecution, God hides his smiling face. I was so encouraged this last week to get to hear a recording, actually see a, a video. It wasn't played live. This was from last week up in Alberta, Grace Life Church, Pastor James Coates, their worship service, hearing them sing. They've, they've had to move their church underground, if you will. They had to meet some undisclosed location, tell people to turn off their cell phones and all that, but they said it was such a wonderful thing to worship as a church. The first time in a long time that they've been able to worship freely without harassment and literal police coming in and trying to get in the building and walking up and down. And he said, you you took away our facility, but we're going to just find another one. We're going to keep worshiping. That, That doesn't stop the church Even if there wasn't a building for them to meet, they would be meeting outside. But the Lord is building his church, strengthening his church. We need to be in prayer for people like our brethren up north, but all around the world. We're just just now in the western North American world beginning to see more of what's been going on all over the place. But we need to be awake. We need to be alert. We need to be praying. Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. The nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is not bound to a building. He is building his church. But we need to be in prayer for these things. We know as the hymn we sang earlier, God's truth will triumph. His kingdom is forever. It cannot be stopped. But I need to also say here, as we're talking about smiling Laughing by God. Sin is no joke to God. We don't want to misunderstand that at all. But it's as if when he sees what man thinks he can do with his purposes, with his people, with his kingdom, that he can't help a sovereign smile. Because he's going to use those very things to build his people. I think of times when my own kids did something so foolish and so ridiculous that actually I couldn't help but laugh initially. But then I had to deal with it. And that's what God's going to do here. He's not amused by sin. He is going to deal with it here. But, but when he sees these tiny little creatures shaking their fist at him, it's, it's ridiculous. Shai Lin puts it into poetry this way. The sovereign Lord, nobody can stop his reign. So why do the nations rage and all the peoples plot in vain? Their sin and offense is against his excellence, and they're not ashamed. But that's like a, or they, they cock and aim. Their, their target is his cosmic reign, but that's like a kid with a super soaker trying to conquer Spain. It's like a kid with a squirt gun showing up at Spain or North Korea to try to get them to surrender. Man is trying to ball up his puny fist at the Lord who is ruling this. What's amusing is God just laughs like, who is this? Stupid kids who persist in foolishness. It's only by God's power you exist. Now you declare war on the Lord, 
Before you were born, I formed you in the uterus. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's established his king in Zion, and his name is Jesus. And so that takes us to the next point. Christ's reign, God's reaction, Christ's reign. Verse 6, God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is God the Father speaking of his son and The king speaks in verse 7 now of what the father told him. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So you've got man at the beginning of this setting himself against God, but God has set Jesus as Zion's king. This is, I think, the heavenly Zion till the day of his wrath when he's going to come down to his, his earthly throne. But based on how the New Testament quotes these verses right here, I take this as his heavenly enthronement. At his resurrection, he, he went and he is, he's risen, he's, he's reigning right now. He is going to return and he's going to reign eternally and in New Jerusalem, but this language of decree really starts in eternity past. There's always been this plan. There's this decree of the Son, the begotten, that means unique, one and only Son. We could, I could show you Acts 13, Romans 1, Hebrews 1, but, but just, just know this is talking about this unique time when he's here on earth and when he's exalted and enthroned, he is over the raging nations. And he will be given those nations as his inheritance. There's an inheritance promised to the Son from eternity past. It's an inheritance of nations. People from those raging nations are going to become praising people. People who rebel against him now are going to be part of his reward. Those who hate him now, some from those very nations will be his heritage. Those who are plotting against him will be his possession and these heathen, these nations that think they can win their own way. The Lord says, no, I own you. He can literally say in the fullest sense of that word, I own you. You can't bring an end to my kingdom. But there is a promise here that people from the ends of the earth are going to be given to the Son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. I think maybe that begins to be fulfilled in John 17, where Jesus asks the Father as he's going to the cross for not only those who believed in me here, but those he's praying for for the world, for those who would come to believe in him in the future. And every tribe and tongue is what we heard about in Revelation chapter 5 earlier. I've heard this verse actually in Psalm 2 motivated some in the modern missions movement to know that as they would go to the ends of the earth and to the nations, there's people from those nations who are going to be part of the inheritance that's given to the Son as we go to the ends of the earth, even to the end of the age. And I think verse 9 takes us to the end of the age. He's going to come again from his heavenly throne. Revelation 19 says that the second coming is going to strike down the nations He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. I think in Revelation we see the final attempt of Psalm 2. A united defiance 
of the world. Revelation 11. Listen to the language. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. So this is the last trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's all these trumpets, these seals, and all these different things, but there's this now announcement, and it's, it's going to be consummated that the kingdom of this world is going to become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We see that at the end of Revelation. He shall reign forever and ever. That's Christ's reign, but what's your response? This verses 10 through 12. Response number one, be wise and be warned. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. O rulers of the earth, be warned. This is addressed directly to kings of the world. We could say, O King Abdullah II, be wise. O Ayatollah Khomeini, take warning. O Sultan Sayyid, or Prime Minister Sheikh al-Sabah, O President Mahmoud Abbas, Psalm 2, verse 10 is speaking to you. O Kim Jong-un, O General Secretary of the Communist Party of China, O Emperor Akihito, watch yourself, be wise. This this is a a warning, a gracious warning to, to you, wherever you would be, rulers, presidents, President Biden, President Harris, Congress, Senate, Democrats, the crown, the, whatever your nation, whatever its, its structure is, this is a warning to leaders to be careful, to be wise, to be discerning. And especially if you think you can overthrow God's ways or if you can overwrite what God has said about his people and about family and all these things. In fact, the end of verse 10 in the New American Standard is judges of the earth take warning. Any judges who would seek to try to cast off God's law, like verse 3, there, there's a, a warning here. Be wise, be warned. This would speak to governments of, of Canada. Premier Jason Kennedy or Chief Officer Dina Hinshaw or Alberta Health Services, RCMP, or, or anywhere around any part of the world, be wise, be warned, be discerning as to what's really going on. If you would think you can take hostage a church building while, while leaving alone mosques and massive crowds at stores and, and malls and, and think there's going to be no effect of that, take warning. Be wise about this. If you're a, a judge who would keep a pastor in jail while releasing at the same time sex offenders, be discerning. Be wise from that very same center. There is a rod of justice. There is true justice that the world is crying out for that you don't want to mess with this justice. But there's, there's mercy from this Lord. But we need to know this, the gates of Hades or, or health departments are not going to stop the church. We need to be wise. We need to be warned. And the second response is we need to be repentant and be reverent because he is going to rule with a rod of iron. But there's a, there's a rod of iron coming, but there's still a scepter of grace. Until then, I think of the, the king in Esther's day who 
If you came before the king unannounced, there could be death for you. But if he extended the scepter of grace and you came humbly before him and he would hear you and he would receive you, that's, that's kind of the idea here when it speaks of the, the Lord's scepter or in verse 11 specifically, come to serve the Lord with fear. That can be translated, worship the Lord with fear. This is a call to to surrender, to come humbly and lowly on your face, fall before him and submit as a lowly servant in awe as you serve. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of what? Of wisdom. That's where that wisdom comes from. Here's a third response. And this isn't just, again, written for people out there. This is written for religious people. The Psalms were read by the Jewish religious people. Here's a third response. Embrace Christ and exalt Christ. Embrace Christ. Exalt Christ. The end of verse 11 commands rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Or your Bible might say give homage or honor to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Sometimes I'll open our wood-burning stove and there's, there's coals there that can be quickly kindled. Sometimes I'm putting wood on there and I don't even, I'm not even putting on kindling or, or paper. It just, it's so quickly kindled. The idea there is you don't know when, that, when your day is coming. It could be very soon. And there is anger. There is wrath from the Lord Jesus. And if you want to take him out of the picture... If you don't want his rule, if you want to set the rules, that is cosmic treason. And this king, this king who does what is right, will bring justice. But there's good news here, because he also offers mercy before that day comes. Instead of the death we deserve, there is mercy before this one, if we will kiss the Son, if we will come to this one who is the judge, who will do what's right. We need to settle out of court with him. We need to plead guilty before him, fall before him, beg him to have mercy on us based on what he has done on the cross for us through Christ. Kiss the Son. I think of someone who would fall at the feet of of a ruler and would kiss their feet to show honor. And as you fall at this one's feet and you kiss his feet, his feet have nail prints in them. His feet, even as he showed Thomas after he rose, his hands and his feet and his side still have the marks of his wounds for us. So show honor to this one, this kinsman redeemer, this this one we were singing about earlier. If you embrace him by faith before it's too late. The verse says, how blessed are all. Who take refuge in him. He is that mighty fortress, that refuge from the wrath that we deserve. We need to take refuge in him, cling to him, and take refuge in him, rejoicing with trembling. Don't be like those trying to foolishly cast off his cords. Join the worship of those who cast down their crowns at his feet. And exalt the Lord as sovereign. In in the way you think of him, the way you think of the world, honor him in the way you think. Don't be dismayed at the raging nations and the problems in our nation because God isn't. God is working his purposes. We need to look to him and trust him as our mighty fortress, as our sovereign 
Savior and as our precious Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray for his help. Our great God, we thank you for this great picture of your absolute sovereignty. And Lord, we want to be those used by you to speak your words of grace and blessing for those who would take refuge in you. Lord, the fact that you're sovereign should motivate us, knowing that you do have the power to change any sinful heart, and that you want to use us to bring your word to the ends of the earth. So help us, Lord, to make much of these great truths. For the glory of your great Son, we pray. Amen.